O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Thank you, Rich, for reading that. We are in a series now for um, a few weeks studying the Psalms, and uh, they are language for us to express, language of the soul. Uh, This particular psalm that we're going to be covering this morning um, is more instructive than anything, and so uh, we're asking that God would help us as we study this together. Let's pray one more time and ask God to lead us through our time together around the Word. Lord, we thank you for the time that we can gather, and we are thankful for the fellowship that you provide for us. We're thankful that you have loved us and chased us and pursued us. We're thankful that you've given us your spirit now to put sin to death and to walk in obedience with you so that we might have fellowship. And I pray that this morning as we cover this psalm that you would clarify in our minds the movement from salvation into sanctification and even the benefits that our salvation gives to us in sanctification so that we might have joy and fellowship with you. I pray for us collectively as your children that you would bring to mind this week those times in which we're pursuing sin and breaking fellowship with you, uh, regarding iniquity in our heart, um, pursuing our own idols above you. And so please use this psalm um, in our lives now, in our lives this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So moving rather quickly into our sermon this morning, Psalm 15 was just read a few moments ago, and it starts with two questions in verse 1. The two questions are, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And then followed up with another question of, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Then following verse 1, we have several answers. Uh, You could maybe count them 10 to 13, depending on how you count them. I'm going to give you four categories later on in the sermon. And those four categories are going to put a responsibility on us for pursuing a relationship with God. So that's the layout of the psalm. Verse 1, the questions, as you can see here, the questions of fellowship with God, and then we're going to move into the second part of the psalm, which gives us answers. So let's talk about the questions in verse 1. The questions are stated as, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, this psalm was written by David at a time when the temple had not yet been built. The tent 
then, in verse 1, is a reference to the tabernacle. Uh, That tent which, under the Mosaic law, was erected out in the wilderness. The Ark of the Covenant was housed in the back part of that tent. And then the reference to this holy hill refers to the place where God chose to make himself known to his people. That's why it's called holy, because God was making himself known. He was present in a unique way. That hill in particular was the place of Jerusalem, where the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle was placed under David's reign. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So we know that this reference now to the tent is the tabernacle, this holy hill in Jerusalem there where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant was located. The original audience, David wrote this with an original audience in mind. The Jews who heard these questions in verse 1 would have clearly understood the the deeper meaning. Um, What is the deeper meaning here? Well, when you look at our ESV, it uses this phrase, who is going to sojourn in your tent and who is going to dwell with you? Um, Let me read the New English translation. Verse 1 puts it this way, Lord, who may be a guest in your home? And so the idea here is about fellowship or togetherness. It's one thing if the Amazon man comes up to your house and drops off a package and then leaves. He's been to your place and now he's gone. Or to have a city worker show up at your house and test your water pipes to see whether or not they are lead. But yet it's, a, it's another thing for your small group to show up at your house for the afternoon, bringing in their meals sitting down at your table, using your microwave or oven, moving over into the kitchen at your faucet, perhaps using your restroom, again, coming back around the table and starting to ask questions about how your week was. And what did you take away from your time in the Word this week? Or what did you hear in the sermon this morning that stood out to you? And for two or three hours, people are dwelling with one another. They're sojourning. They're traveling, if you will, in hospitality with one another. Or for your family to show up. Hopefully that's a good thing for you. Where your family shows up and you sit for a while and you catch up on where you've been in life. Not this week, but next week. My family's coming over here and we're going to meet up in Cadillac. And I'm looking forward to pulling out some camping chairs, sitting under a tree, and just hearing from my extended family what's been going on in life. And we're going to dwell with one another for a week. So you can pray for me on about day three, okay, that I dwell well with them. And what David is talking about here is this second category, not the Amazon delivery person or the city worker who comes in, shows up, and leaves. He's talking about this second category of being with one another, having fellowship with one another, but he's applying it not to one another, he's applying it to our relationship with God. And so the question 
in verse 1 is more like this. Who is it that can be in meaningful fellowship with God? Who is it that can meaningfully dwell with him and have this meaningful, ongoing relationship with him? It's sort of thought-provoking in nature because our immediate response would be, well, anyone who comes to the cross is able to have meaningful fellowship with him. But is that true? We should all be able, as children of God, we should all be able to say, I am having meaningful fellowship with God. The questions in verse 1 are meant to be a little thought-provoking for us. They might sound so simple, and yet the more we think about it, we're asking the question, is that me? It's important to also know that here's God, and God desires fellowship with us. You think about passages like Revelation 3, verse 20 where God the Son says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm there. I, I want to come in. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I will dwell with him. I will have fellowship with this individual. In terms of having that ongoing relationship, God desiring this relationship, we could look at passages like Je Jeremiah 3. Slightly different language here, but God speaking, and again, this is the New English translation, putting it this way, it says, I thought to myself, oh, what a joy it would be for me to treat you like a son. What a joy it would be for me to give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful piece of property there is in all the world. I thought you would call me father and never cease being loyal to me. Can you hear a father saying that to his son, saying, I want this relationship with you. I want this fellowship with you. And the point is that God desires fellowship with his people. And just the fact that this question is in here tells us that this is what God wants for us. Oh, Lord, who can dwell with you in fellowship? Now, some of you might be saying right now, I don't really care about that. I don't care about a meaningful relationship with God. I got the get out of hell card from God. That's what I want. And now I'm just moving and grooving with my peeps and my possessions in life. This is what I want over here. And you're asking the question to me or to God here, why should I want fellowship with him? Well, the answer is found at the end of the next psalm, which we'll cover next week, but let's get a sneak peek. Why should I want fellowship with God? Look at Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. Now, hear this, hear this next phrase. In your presence, there is fullness 
not partial, not sprinkled out pixie dust kind of stuff, but there is actual fullness up to the top, an overflowing kind of fullness of joy. And at your right hand are the pleasures that don't ever end. They are forevermore continual, ongoing. And for the person who says, I don't really care about meaningful fellowship with God, you have to ask yourself, well, what am I trying to get out of my people and possessions in life? You're trying to get happiness. You're trying to get pleasure. You're trying to get fullness of joy from these things over here. And the Bible would say, you can't get that except from God. You can't get that overflowing, full pleasure, full joy, except in fellowship with God himself. So, if I could sit down with the sort of casual, perhaps cool Christian, or even the hurting, sad, struggling with bitterness Christian, and ask, what do you want? What is it in life over here that you really want to get fixed? And I think we all have these categories. If I could just get this fixed in life, life would be pleasurable. Life would be joyful. So many of our answers to that question are going to be horizontal in nature. Circumstances, people, things in life. And you certainly might have, I should say, would have more joy if those things were taken care of. But here's what the Bible says from the very beginning. We're chasing after the wrong things. Kind of like C.S. Lewis said, where we're like children in the slums just enjoying mud pies over here. Far too easily pleased when God offers us a holiday at the sea. And so here we are just tried to craft our mud pies in such perfect order so that we could be joyful and pleasurable. And God says, no, you're missing it. I've designed you to be in relationship with me. And that's where, like overflowing root beer coming out of a mug, is where overflowing joy, overflowing pleasures are to be found. Right here. So we have to come to verse 1 with the understanding that fellowship with God is of utmost value. And the question that comes forward now is, how can I have fellowship with God? If I am far too easily pleased by pursuing after these horizontal things with people, things, and circumstances over here, arranging them perfectly or pursuing them relentlessly so that I can have joy, how is it that I'm supposed to move from what you're saying over there to having this meaningful relationship with God, which I'm told at the end of chapter 16 or Psalm 16 results in this erupting or overflowing or fullness of joy? How do I move there? And the answer to that question is going to chafe against so many of us. It's going to bother. The answer that we're going to go through in verses 2 through 5 is going to rub some of us really the wrong way. And the reason why it's going to rub so many of us the wrong way is because our first impulse is going to say, that sounds legalistic. I grew up in a church 
where the leaders in the church made all of these rules and they said you had to do this, this, and this, and if we met their expectations, then apparently we were good. And now I come to verses two through five and it sounds like this, this, and this, and then apparently I'm good. What we need here is an understanding between positional sanctification where a relationship with God can only begin by accepting Jesus as our Savior with the forgiveness of sins that takes place here. I come into a relationship with God by accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior. Period. By faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, as we read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2, that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree for a purpose. That we might live now in righteousness. So Christ bore our sins over here so that we might come into a relationship with God. We receive his righteousness on our account, on our lives. And yet that salvation that came through Christ is like, a propulsion that pushes us over here that says, now I can put sins to death in my life so that I can have fellowship with God, which results in fullness of joy. If this is positionally being brought into God's family, which we call positional sanctification, then verses two through five are going to be talking about progressive sanctification, the growth that takes place in our life. Think of it this way. To show up at the altar with your fiance and have a pastor rightfully make a declaration that you are now husband and wife, that's what's needed to enter into marriage, to enter into this relationship. Yet, if you stay at that place and say, I don't need any sweat, I don't need any effort to put forward in marriage, I just expect it to happen, you are sorely mistaken. For the next 50 to 60 years, because this relationship has taken place, because a covenant, a binding agreement has taken place, you have the security that you're in relationship. Now for the next several decades, you are pouring yourself out in sacrificial love with tears and forgiveness and trust, and then you're doing it all over again and again and again and again. And what flows out of that effort is meaningful, joyful relationship inside of marriage. The person who says, I don't want any of that work, that sounds like too much, is never going to enjoy the depths of marriage. And the person who says that about their relationship with God that says, I don't need to put any efforts into this, I don't need to put any work into this, is never going to understand the depth and meaning and fullness of joy in relationship with God. Fellowship with God takes work. It takes effort. Strive for holiness, says the writer of Hebrews, without which no one will see the Lord. James chapter 2. 
There is a kind of faith that is in you that produces works, that moves forward in life. And that's what David is talking about here. I mentioned earlier that this is going to be hard for some people. One author said it this way. In the laid-back, latte-sipping ambiance of many contemporary churches, the notion that God might actually demand something of us before we can come into his presence is as foreign as forelocks and phylacteries. The God of the 21st century asks only that we show up. Come as you are, no questions asked, no requirements, just come on in. And you're like, yeah, what are those forelocks and phylacteries? Those little braids that the Orthodox Jewish men wear and the phylacteries are little leather pouches that pieces of the law were put in so that they might remember who God is. That's foreign to us. And in our contemporary culture, to say that God demands something of us for fellowship, we're like, whoa, 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 that sounds like the legalism that I was brought up in years ago where some guy was at the top and disapproved of anything, so we had to meet his expectations. I don't want that. Okay, we have to have the maturity right now that can separate that which has happened from the past, and perhaps some of you had some bad experiences with that, from taking God at his word, faith. Pastor Andy's been drilling that into him. What is faith? It's taking God at his word. So we're coming over here and we're saying, okay, God, I want this. I need this. It's tempting to get to verses two through five and say, oh man, all these things happen under the Old Testament law. That's kind of Mosaic law stuff. I'm just gonna scuttle that under the cross and I'm no longer under the law, I'm under grace. Well, we've addressed this. So hopefully we're a little disarmed from any resistance to verses 2 through 5. And we're looking at this saying, oh, God, I'm going to trust you. What do you want from me in order to have fellowship with you? All right, so four categories that we're going to look at in this next, sec in this next section. So the, answering, the answers for fellowship with God in verses 2 through 5. And then after that, we're going to look at a couple other passages from the New Testament just to see continuity going throughout the Bible. So, fellowship with God, we want it. We want it. What does this look like? Four broad answers. Number one is simply godly character. Godly character. And you see this in verse 2. It says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The idea of walking blamelessly is this idea that our walk or our lives are characterized by integrity. To have fellowship with God, we must make decisions that are consistent with biblical integrity, consistent with God's word. He goes on to say in the second part of that verse, he does what is right. This is consistent with God's nature. And then thirdly, he says here that he speaks truth in his heart. Some of your versions might have, he speaks truth from his heart. I think it's a better translation to say, he speaks truth in his heart, because what even comes from the heart has taken place in the heart. And so when you think about this, here are three categories of godly character, living blamelessly by integrity, choosing to do what is right, speaking truth at the bottom, at the depths of who he is. Philippians 4, verse 8, when it comes to truth in the heart, says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what are you supposed to do? Think about these things all the way down to the bottom of your heart. So much bitterness in our lives comes from those conversations being spoken deep down in our heart about people or even about ourselves that are untrue. So much discord, so much fear in life comes from those conversations that are happening. It's like boys in the back parlor and you just want to slam the door in your heart and say, I'm done with that. And I thought that at 43 years old, this would be done. But it just keeps going. And now I'm realizing this, that when I'm in my funk of listening to lies in my heart and even letting them continue forward in conversations in my heart. I'm not speaking truth in my heart. I'm not thinking the right thing. And what the text says from verse one is, who's going to dwell on God's holy hill? Who's going to sojourn with God? Who's going to have fellowship? And what I realize in this moment over here is that when I'm rumbling around with these conversations, I need to know right at that moment, I can't have fellowship with God. I am giving myself over to falsehoods and lies. I want to be joyful. I want to have pleasures. And in that moment, it's like, wait a second, this is my problem. I'm having problems in my heart right now. So I can go, that's sin. That's wrong. Of course I can't be close to God. So I repent of that. Godly character is a requirement to have fellowship with God. Secondly, verse 3, the second category is godly speech. Verse 3 says, Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach or an insult against his friend. So this clearly has to do with how we speak of others. Fellowship with God hinges on how we speak of other people. Now, you can think of maybe a very mature saint in your life, a very mature Christian in your life. And one of the things that you will notice about them is that they are very guarded with the way that they talk about other people. And you respect that because it is so easy for this tongue to just unleash and be out of control. Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then James 3, verses 8 through 10 says, But no human being can really tame the tongue, can get a bridle around it completely. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. And so what David is saying here is the person who is going to have fellowship with God is somebody who takes their tongue and aims to obey God with it. I'm not going to let corrupting talk come out of my mouth. I have the spirit of God to put that kind of corruption to death so that I might live by the Spirit. I think about this sort of illustratively. It sure is easy to talk about other people, isn't it? 
It just kind of comes naturally. Their faults, wow, they get accentuated in our minds. And it goes from the mind to the mouth quite easily. Isn't it really easy just to sit around and talk about other people and their problems? And James is saying, hey, I want you to know about this, that those people are made in the likeness of God. So to talk about somebody who is made in the likeness of God is going to be an offense to the one who made them. So you can think about it this way. Think of a young 16-year-old girl who has an art project that she's worked on, and she was supposed to do some sort of painting that was inspired by Van Gogh. And maybe you remember Starry Night where the things just kind of flow in that painting there. And so she does her painting, and she takes it to the community center because they're supposed to be presented there, and she puts it up on display there. And then the public is allowed to come in, and she has to step back from her painting, and so she's off to the side over here. Nobody knows that that's her work. And people come in, and some are, oh, that's nice, that's pleasant, moving along. And then her peers come in, other girls her age, and they're just giggling around, and they come up to this painting, and they say, it kind of looks like blue spaghetti. You know, noodles all over the place, lathered in blue. And they have no clue that she's standing within earshot of what they're talking about there. They have no clue that she's the designer of that. They're ignorant of it. And yet those words about that painting don't stop at the painting. They bounce through the painting, if you will, and they ultimately land on her as the creator of that painting. You're insulting my work here. And in the same way, when we are having our little conversations, slandering people, tearing people down, we tend to think that it stops at the canvas of people right there. And there's God who is ever-present, who has made that individual receiving, if you will, the insult back to himself. And so the psalmist is saying, you can't go around slandering people whom God has created over it. You can't have fellowship with God if you are going to insult, slander his work. And so again, this reminds me, I want to be joyful, Psalm 1611. I want pleasure. That comes through a relationship with God. If I am given over to insulting, talking about people, tearing down people, I'll throw a little humor in there just to make it funny. God's like, no, that's not a sincere heart. You're not in fellowship with me. You can't have fellowship. So godly speech about others is a requirement to have fellowship with God. It's that Ephesians 4 where I'm going to talk with grace that builds up rather than tears down. So do you want fellowship with God? Godly character matters. Do you want fellowship with God? Godly speech matters. Thirdly, godly values. Verse 4, godly values. In verse 4 it says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The point here is that this person loves God's people 
And in a world of pop culture and star celebrities and favorite politicians who are trying to rack up fan bases, we know that it's easy to become enamored with people. And sometimes those people overflow with sinful messages or sinful identities. And what David is saying here is that it's wrong for a person to take the vile person and say, this is whom I love and whom I care for. David is saying, our affections, our honor ought to be given to those who lift up the Lord, who fear the Lord. And so the point is that those who have fellowship with God have a pattern of truly valuing those who follow the Lord. Value the people of God. That's why we come together. That's why it's right for us to come together and to love one another and to serve one another, to honor one another. It's a means that God has given to us to be in fellowship with him. And so the point, again, to have fellowship with God, you must be willing to love the people whom God loves. Fourth, godly dealings. Godly dealings. You see this in the middle of verse 4. He says that, This person swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So he has godly dealings with other people. And the idea is that it's sometimes hard for people to keep their commitments, to keep their vows. And yet God says that kind of person is pleasing to me. So somebody who has fellowship with God is is going to make commitments and is going to keep those commitments to God. When it comes to his money, he's not greedy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, it said under the law, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. So how do we do this in a world where everything is based on interest? One author, James Boyce, said this. He says, I'm convinced that the concern of this verse is not with receiving interest for money loaned, though it seems to say that, but rather with whom the interest is taken from. In other words, the verse concerns greed eclipsing justice. And I think he's right here. I think the way that we bring this into our context today is that God welcomes those whose heart is characterized by kindness and generosity rather than greed and taking. This reflects the person of Christ who is generous and giving. To have fellowship with God, you must be someone who gives of yourself and the resources that God has given to you. Okay, so we just talked about four areas here about fellowship with God. And remember, this psalm is asking, who can have fellowship with God? Verses two through five, answer that. And then at the very end, he says this, he who does these things shall never be moved. All right, does that remind you of some of Jesus's words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Who is a wise man? He's the man who builds his house on a rock. Okay, well, what does that mean? And Jesus went on to say, those who receive my words and live by them or do those words is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The storm comes and it doesn't push his life over. 
When the storm comes, he feels the storm, and yet he remains steady through it. And so as you move through verses 2 through 5, the idea here is that those who have fellowship with God will not be shaken. They will abide through the trial that takes place. They will abide through the circumstance that they're facing in life. So, going back to a thought from the beginning. Is this just Old Testament law that doesn't apply to me that Moses had for the people of Israel out in the wilderness? Am I allowed just to say something like, ah, I can ignore that? No, God's word here is truth for us. And as we look at this theme of fellowship with God, it continues right throughout the Bible. I want to look at John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, says Jesus, so have I loved you. And notice this language here. You see that language of abide, remain, dwell, be present with me. Abide in my love. And the question is, well, how? How am I going to abide in your love? How am I going to have this fellowship with you in your love? Very next phrase. Look what he says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So the father's son have this relationship that can't be broken. There's perfect fellowship. And Jesus is saying, do you want that? Do you want that? Yes, I do. Okay, then keep my commandments. Keep them by faith in your life. That's what fellowship with God looks like. That's how it will happen. So entering into a relationship with God by faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins is different than, yet continuous with, it's different than fellowship with God on a daily basis. Anyone today can come to God and cry out, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner, I need the righteousness of Christ. But fellowship with God is developed and enjoyed through faith-driven obedience to him, as we see in Psalm 15 and throughout the Bible. To the point that Paul addresses that kind of fellowship with God around this table. So take your Bibles and just go to 1 Corinthians 11, and this is where we will finish. 1 Corinthians 11 Paul is saying to a church that is made up of believers that your disjointed disobedience concerning your relationship with others is a problem. It's a problem. And what we have is this fellowship meal between man and God, between one another at the table and between God And Paul says, wait a second, don't mock the meal by your disobedience to God. Don't pretend that you're coming to this meal having fellowship with God when your character, when your relationships are marked or characterized by disobedience. So 1 Corinthians 11, a word for us now in verse 27 thinking about what we're about ready to do. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And by saying unworthy manner, he's referencing the sin that has been happening in their lives, the unrepentant sin that has happened in their lives. Don't come to the table and eat the bread or drink the cup when you have this unworthiness, this unrepentant sin in your life. Why? Because you will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So then do what? Let a person then examine himself. Let him look inward. Let him put Psalm 15 up as a mirror in front of him and say, am I living in obedience to you or am I living in disobedience, rebellion, and sin against you? Because God, I can't have fellowship with you if I'm running around in disobedience. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so this morning, we should be asking ourselves the question, how can I respond to this psalm? How can I respond to this psalm? Three quick applications. Number one, be thankful that God wants fellowship with you. God is not a distant God who keeps the gap and the chasm between us. As we've seen, God is a God who enjoys fellowship with you because of his attribute of love. Love does what? Love desires. And God loves us. He desires us. He longs for this fellowship. Revelation 3, I stand at the door and knock. I want to come in and have a meal with you. I want you to be in fellowship with me. So number one, be thankful that God wants fellowship and closeness with you. Number two, be aware that my sin disrupts fellowship with God. Be aware that my sin disrupts fellowship with God. For me, I was sharing this with the music group earlier. For me, this was one of the most clarifying yet simple thoughts for me this week. When I have a bad attitude, that's a reflection of bad character, sinful character. When I hear wrong words coming out of my mouth, that's a reflection of ungodly speech. I go back to Psalm 15, and this is very simple. I can't be in fellowship with God if this is what's going on in my life. I can't be in fellowship with God right then and there when I am living in sin. And so much of our misery and so much of our problems come because my sin right there in that moment is keeping me from God. So be aware of that and say, okay, I need to examine myself, as 1 Corinthians 11 says. I need to repent of that sin and follow God, which leads me to application number three, believe. Number one is be thankful that God wants fellowship. Number two, be aware that my sin disrupts fellowship. And number three, believe. Believe that sin must be put to death. And obedience to God is necessary for daily joy with him. Believe that sin must be put to death. And obedience to God is necessary for daily joy with him. And so we come to this table this morning, and it's an opportunity for us 
to be thankful for what God has done, to be aware of what's been going on in my life and to say, okay, Lord, I'm repenting and I want to follow you. This is fellowship with God. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, it would be a good time just to simply examine and confess known sin to God so that when we partake of these elements, you can be in fellowship with him. So just take a moment right now to confess those known sins to God. If you're serving communion this morning, deacons, if you'll come to the front. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us today. We receive your word in faith. And Lord, we want you to complete your work in us. I pray that we would make every effort to strive for holiness, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling knowing that you're at work within us. And then knowing that to walk in obedience with you is to be in that place of, yes, fellowship, and that fellowship is joy, that deep joy that can't be robbed, that deep joy that can't be eclipsed by the horizontal things in life. Suffering will take place, trials will take place, tears will fall. And at the same time, there can be that deep abiding joy because of fellowship with you, carrying us through those times. And so, Lord, will you just please draw us in, even one step in closer to you now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.